This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. So we're about a little bit over halfway through our spring practice period, where we've been uh, exploring the topic of mind, mind in Buddhism, mind in Zen. And we started off with a beautiful study sashin led by Santa Cruz Zen Center's head teacher, Kokyo Henkel, on the Dogen fascicle, this very mind is Buddha. And I don't know about you, but when I first came to practice the mind, thinking about mind and meditation, it's kind of like you have this thing that you're going to wrestle with and kind of, you know, stop. (laughs) Stop the mind from doing its thing, secreting its thoughts and so forth. And you diligently tried not thinking. (laughs) It doesn't work so well. Turns out, turns out that when we try to stop our thinking, yeah, different ways of doing it, different dispositions. However, in this practice period where we've been talking about mind and consciousness, and uh, it's very, it's been a little not too heady, <laughs> but a little bit. And um, I wanted to bring up uh, the Japanese word for mind. You all know what the Japanese word is for mind? Shin. Now, shin is not just mind, however. This character right here is shin. Kokoro in Japanese. And it basically, it's also the shin that's in sashin. So sashin is a time of gathering. Gathering the heart-mind. And notice I slipped in that word, heart because shin, kokoro, it doesn't uh, just, like heart and mind are not seen as two different things. They are part of the same kind of nexus of uh, energy. Shin, kokoro, uh, in Chinese and in Japanese, they don't separate them into two different faculties, thinking faculty and feeling faculty or the heart faculty. And um, my own Dharma name, Unzan Doshin, has that piece as well. And on my Rakasu, when my teacher first gave me my Dharma name and my Rakasu, which he had written out the Dharma name on the inside of it, and uh, he made it very clear to me that this Doshin was path of the heart, not mind. <laughs> <laughs> So, which, if you knew me back then, or maybe even now, uh, you know, it made an impact, right? I came from a very heady discipline of philosophy, analytic philosophy in particular, and I was, you know, really good at logic and cutting things apart and investigating, you know, in terms of analysis. And so he was very clear, the Dharma name, Unzan Doshin, Traditionally, with Dharma names, when you receive, sometimes people receive one name, sometimes two, but traditionally, when you receive two names, the first name is kind of like, that's which, where you are, and then the second name is aspirational. 
And I just recently went through the ceremony of Dharma transmission. And apparently at that time, uh, you stop using the first name and you start using the second. So I've been using the, the name Doshin instead of Unzan. Just a little, little detail. But this insistence from my teacher's standpoint of we're going to call you path of the heart, not path of the mind, you know, that, that uh, meant something to me. And I would say through my Zen practice, that has you know, been something that um, I keep trying to open to. Keep trying to open to. What is the difference? In English, there's a very big difference, right? We can think of like the heart and the mind. Yeah, maybe they're similar, but they're very different, right? In our normal parlance. Um, Shohaku Okamura, who has come here numerous times to lead these uh, study sessions, on this topic, he says, he's talking, so he, um, he's Japanese, and he has children, two children, a boy and a girl, who are fully grown now. Um, but he was talking about his daughter, Yoko, and he says, uh, <clears throat> when I moved to Minneapolis from Japan in 1993 to teach at the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center, my daughter Yoko was five years old. She went to kindergarten and then elementary school there. And while she learned English at school, at home we tried to talk in Japanese. One time, when she was seven or eight, we were talking about the Japanese word kokoro. I pointed to my heart, as we usually do in Japan, to show where kokoro is. She pointed to her head and said, kokoro is here. <laughs> I was amazed to discover she was already translating the Japanese word kokoro into the English word mind. So, interestingly, he goes on to say that in Chinese, this, this uh, picture here is kind of an ideogram for the shape of the heart. And he says the meanings generally include, for kokoro, for shin, a uh, heart organ, uh, generally just the heart area, mind, feeling, intention, center, and essence, all encapsulated in this ideogram here. So he says, basically, there's, there's various ways of usage of this word, heart and its functions, um, the mind and its functions, and this center or essence. Notice that when we chant the heart sutra, we're not chanting the mind sutra. Right? There's a different sutra called the trust in mind or faith in mind sutra. And... Uh, you know, just to see the difference between those two uses as well is very illuminating. Now, in early Buddhism, what's really interesting is even though in early Buddhism, which came out of India, uh, there is no distinction, the, there is no uh, word like shin or kokoro. So traditionally, there's different words that are used to describe, to, uh, to uh, refer to mind. Chitta, Vijnana and Manas. These are all different words that talk about different areas or aspects of uh, what's called mind. Let's see. However, even so, in the earliest, some of the earliest teachings, one of the traditional, one of the three baskets of teachings, the Abhidhamma, is a categorization of all the possible so-called mental states that one is 
uh, that is available to us as human beings, including more and more subtle mental states like the jnanas. However, in the Abhidhamma, I found this the other day, Open this page. Ah, here it is. This is from uh, this is a book on the Abhidhamma by Beth Jacobs. I think I referred to this in the, my last talk here, the original Buddhist psychology. She says, besides associations, mental objects um, also include memories. So this is now talking about the mental objects. Include memories, imagination, conceptualization. This is, uh, you know, conceptualization is where we practice philosophy, like analytic philosophy, in terms of conceptualizing. Subtle bodily experiences and meta-experiences of other mental objects. While sensory processes depend on the matter of the body for a base, the mind door process is said to depend on the heart as a base. Most people in our culture would guess that the brain is the material base for mental processing, but the Abhidhamma thinkers weren't describing cognition in such a manner. They were describing an essential sentient quality that allows us to entertain mental processes. The heart base is not spelled out in the Abhidhamma proper, and some scholars view it as a figurative expression. But in the Vasudhimaga, which is a huge compendium of meditation practices written in the, fourth, in the fifth century, it says that the basis of the mind element and mind consciousness, quote, is a hollow the size of a punaga seed's bed, where half a pasata measure of blood is kept inside the heart. The punaga is a Sanskrit term for the Alexandrian laurel, which has a seed pod that looks like a matte light green ball the size of a big chestnut. A pasata is a handful a little pool of blood inside a little pocket of the heart is considered the base for mental process. She says, I recently hosted three young Japanese men who were on a rental car road trip across America, and we were talking about meditation. Oh, one of them said, that helps to calm the heart. I was impressed at the choice of word heart instead of mind, and this was not an error of translation. It struck me that the consideration of the heart base, capacity for being aware, is an essential living force, not a mechanical brain event. So, very interesting. Now, interestingly, so we just held a, uh, our three-year memorial service for our founder, Shinbo Zenke Blanche Hartman, and when Blanche, I don't know what year it was, but when I came to San Francisco Zen Center in the early 90s, early 90s, mid 90s, in the mid 90s, um, Blanche had just had, uh, suffered a heart attack recently during that time. And she talks about her heart attack numerous places, but she talked about it a lot in her Dharma talks at the time. And she, she did something that was, I, I felt was really beautiful, which was, um, her doctor told her she needed to start exercising some more, and, and he recommended that she walk, to do some walking. So um, she made it into a, a thing that people in the Sangha could join her in as a, as a way of 
supporting her in her walking and then also just being available for people and being uh you know encouraging other people to do the walking with her so she had a sign-up sheet in the foyer of the front you know the front foyer at san francisco zen center where different times she was like okay i'm gonna go on a, this is her intention i'm gonna go on a walk on these days and um people would sign up to go walking with her eric do you no, have she, um, um, which reminds me also of another Blanche story, which is, uh, I think I mentioned this recently as well, and Tim, our director, also talked about his own teacher, Pat Phelan, Joshua Pat Phelan, um, that Blanche, when she was living in San Francisco and uh, was trying to make a commitment to go to practice at Berkeley Zen Center, which is where she started out with Sojin Mel Weitzman, she made this commitment but it's very hard, even in your mind, and I think people who are uh, uh, participating in the spring practice period, when you start the practice period, you kind of write, you get this piece of paper that has all these little you know, times and places, like this is what's happening at this time at the Zen Center, and you can come and meditate at these times, or you can meet in, at these times. And everyone is asked to kind of fill out what their... Um, what their intention is, what their aspiration, maybe an aspiration, these are the times I want to commit to coming to sit. And anybody, how many people have done this before, practice periods? A number of people. How many of you felt that your intention that you laid out completely was in alignment with what you did? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you can tell by the laughter that probably not completely. It's very hard. It's very hard. And how many of you have decided you wanted to start, you know, something like a exercise <laughs> regimen or a diet or something like that or New Year's resolutions, right? Now, the place that this inspiration for this uh, commitment comes from, where does that come from in your experience? Where does the intention arise from? Lack? Lack. Lack. Something is missing that needs to be filled in. Something may be missing. Yeah? Okay. Brain. The brain. What? My, my mind. Your brain mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not my heart. Not your heart. Mm. Desperation. <laughs> Tracy, it, it, you made it. Desperation. I feel like if I don't do this, Things aren't going to go, things are already not going so well. That's why I'm even interested in the first place. I really need to apply myself because it's not going to keep going not so well or so I thought. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. So that was the feeling of the time. I can't do this because I don't. Then, you know, all these things are going to happen or not happen and you've wasted your life and. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking, thinking comes in, this is very much brain-mind. Mm-hmm. The feeling of lack, I wonder where the feeling of lack comes from. Like I, taking a step you back. You notice mistakes, for example, and consequences, and you get tired of those consequences, and so you decide to change how you do things. Yeah. There's a, in uh, speaking of the Abhidhamma, I wanted to just mention as well that there's a um, th- so all of these mental factors are li- are have different designations and different qualities. And one of the <coughs> qualities that all mental factors have, they are broken down into one of three uh, qualities or feelings: um, wholesome, unwholesome, 
and neutral. All of them have one of those designations. Either they are in support of waking up, they detract from waking up, or they make it harder to wake up, or they don't really have a, you know, they don't have much of an impact, or one that we can discern, right? So you can, you can imagine that a mental faculty of uh, anger or hostility, right, might have a negative effect on awakening, and a factor like joy, like inconceivable joy, might have a positive, uh, wholesome effect on awakening. Yeah? Interestingly, la your, your comment about lack reminded me of this. The mental factor of remorse is considered wholesome, which is different from self-blame or a certain kind of regret that is punishing. So... There's a very, it's, it's not, it's, so, it's a kind of subtle difference, but the difference is, is actually very big, right? Rich, were you going to say that? Uh, well, I was just, to add, to follow up with what you're saying about, uh, I, I've met Jaco Gomorra before, and he talked about his teacher and how important to uh, his teacher that uh, the idea of vow and repentance was, mm -hmm. and that. The, the vow is based on a uh, on bodhicitta or a, a desire to end suffering or compassion for the suffering. Bodhicitta again is and, the mind of waking up. Right, and so, but and part of that is, and then follow that with the repentance, which is, I have this vow, I can't necessarily accomplish it all the time or very well because I'm deluded. But uh, I will keep trying, and I will repent when I fail, and I'll just keep trying and return to, you know, return to that now. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And I've always felt like bodhicitta had to do with the heart more than the mind. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. an accurate mm -hmm. translation. Yeah. It just seems like it. Yeah, this citta is actually is what is used as this kind of basket, which in Shohaku, when he talks about the breakdown of these different words, and Suzuki Roshi talking about beginner's mind, he also says he thinks these, this, these are talking about the heart mind, not this thinking apparatus that we call what we you know, think of as the brain. So when I ask the question of what brings people, you know, what brings people into like this, you know, wanting to some aspiration, setting an intention, where does that intention come from? You know, I asked that question, I got a number of different responses that were in the realm of um, something's got to change, yeah? Either there's a feeling of lack or there's a feeling of I'm not living up to what I need to live up to to be happy with this life, right? There's some um, acknowledgement of if I do X, then it may benefit me or benefit others, consequences, right? Now, what about that? Now, bringing it down to think of all of those, those times when we make a vow or make a commitment or we say to ourselves, I need to X, right? There can be this feeling of uh, urgency, as Tracy pointed out. And if I don't do this, things are gonna, not going to be good, right? But when we sit in Zazen, and we let go of thinking mind, 
right? We let go of thoughts. We don't uh, harbor thoughts. We don't uh, kind of feed the thinking apparatus, right? So when thoughts come, naturally, we let them go, right? It's like watching the little bubbles on the stream float by, right? When we sit in zazen, what are we doing if we're not thinking? What is our relationship to mind in zazen? Watching. Watching? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like you're getting comfortable with the foundation of life. It, it's, mm. it becomes familiar. You can find that spot more frequently. Do you all hear that? Becoming comfortable with the foundation of life. when you sit and allow and you're not distracted by your thoughts. I mean, you're going to be distracted by your thoughts when you first start to sit. But as you sit more and more, your thoughts become less juicy. Less, there's less energy. They don't grab you and shake you as much when you uh, allow this coming and going. And you don't, you, know, you don't try and stop the thoughts. If you try and stop thoughts, we know what happens there, right? They just poke out in other places like hernias. <laughs> These little bulges and suddenly like, ah, where did that come from? And you know exactly where it came from. You've been squashing it. Right. Blanche wrote a, uh, gave a Dharma talk um, where she talked, she talked also about her heart attack. She said, you know, if you just think about it a moment, it's simply awesomely, amazingly wonderful just to be alive. Just to be alive is awesome. It is a wonderful gift, and especially on a beautiful spring day like this. But you know, it took me a lot of years of meditation practice and a heart attack before I really got that, it, just, to be, that just to be alive is awesome. As I was walking out of the hospital, having survived a heart attack about 11 years ago now, I had this thought, wow, I could be dead. The rest of my life is just a gift. And then I thought, well, it has always been a gift from the very beginning, and I never noticed it until it was almost gone. I think this is true of many of us, that we don't notice what a gift it is just to be alive. And she goes on to say how being alive also has its problems. <laughs> and then getting back to this, what is happening during Zazen, she addresses some of the people, this is a great lecture, by the way. It's, uh, the, the name of the lecture, her lecture, is called A Natural Action. You can find it online. She says, she's talking about how people, some people came for meditation instruction. Did anybody here do the meditation instruction this morning? Yeah? She said, so why would you need to have instruction in just sitting? (laughs) But you know, just sitting doesn't mean merely sitting. It means completely sitting. Not doing anything else, just sitting. I don't know if you've noticed, probably you have, that when you sit down intending to just sit, there's a lot going on. I think we don't really notice how active our mind is until we sit still, 
with the intention of not deliberately thinking. Even though we are not deliberately thinking, a lot of thinking is going on. At least this is my experience. I had no idea how completely incessantly busily active my mind was until I sat down with the intention of just being still and just being quiet and not grasping the thoughts that came along. Now, the other thing that uh, she brings up in this talk and I also wanted to bring up is that Pema Chodron talks about, um, sometimes she talks about, when she talks about our suffering, like what, is, what does suffering do to our heart, mind? How do we, how do we process suffering? Where is that suffering processed? In particular, I think it's most felt, or we can most, uh, our experience of it comes to the forefront when we are in the process of grieving, right? There are different stages of grieving, as, uh, as many of you have probably read and maybe felt the different stages of grieving. But sometimes the first stage of grieving is um, denial. Right? That didn't just happen. There's a, a block, there's a no, a very strong no. And Pema Chodron talks about uh, this open wound, which, it happens, is also the entry point or the gateway into boundless compassion and inconceivable joy. This open wound. You think of an open wound, it's like it's so sensitive, it doesn't want to be touched, right? You will need to cover it, and, and yet she's like, no, you keep it clean, you keep it breathing, keep it alive. Not that you, you know, tear the, you know, the scabs off and create an open wound. We don't need to do that. We all have our open wound you know, without trying, without trying to manufacture it. And when we sit in zazen, oftentimes, you know, sometimes people think of zazen or meditation practice as a time to kind of peace out. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe sometimes that happens. But actually, a lot of times when we sit quietly and just, uh, what did you say again? You open yourself to the foundation of life? Yeah. What comes up is not necessarily calm. Maybe calm is something that is a fruit, one of the benefits of allowing things to come up and then settle, and allowing things to come up again and then settle, right? Calm can come out of that. So Blanche is talking about a discussion group that she went to. It was a spiritual, spirituality discussion group, but they were talking about uh, loss, grief and how to process that. What, what is it that process it, processes that? Is it thinking? Is it the mind aspect of conceptualizing and analyzing? Coming up with the, the proper you know, descriptive words of different, different things? Is that what helps us face grief? Anyone have an experience where your thinking mind helped you? seems universally require time. Yeah. But will time always, is that, is that a... Well, uh, I, I, I think the issue is nobody can instantly get over it. Yeah. 
or get over the loss, right? There are other techniques in the grieving process, but the mm -hmm. common thing seems to be it takes time. Yeah. Would you all agree with that? It takes time? Would time alone, is that sufficient? That's the interesting question. <laughs> Mary. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You have to move through it. Say more. You have to let yourself feel and express mm. the, the, the depth of the sorrow and loss. You have to go through the depression. Yeah. You have to go through whatever it is you're going through. So an interesting thing is that something that is boring, some folks avoid being bored, and boring is the warning sign that depression is the next step. You have to be willing to sit through the morning to get through the depression to get to acceptance. Hmm, interesting. I can see that. There, there are folks in my own experience. <laughs> and the attention seekers tend to bounce away from anything that's boring. They have to stay entertaining, entertaining, because they don't want to be bored because there's depression on the other side that they don't want to have to face. Mm -hmm. Which, if they did, would actually get them through to the acceptance so that they wouldn't have this issue. Which would lead to the boundless, inconceivable joy. Anne? Oh, I just, my experience with people that I've worked with, particularly older people who have issues of grief from their childhood, they never, never dealt with, and it's still like it happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. So, it, no, time does not <laughs> make it go away on its own. No. Which is what she just said, you have to spend time with it. Yeah, and it's not necessarily depression. Okay. So it's just, it is just part of life to experience loss and sorrow. And pathologizing it is what often keeps us from mm. doing it. Mm. And sharing it. And, sharing and sharing it. it. It's just universal. I agree. I agree with that. Sorry. Sorrow. Sorrow. Mm. Sorrow is different than depression. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. I think in in my own my own experience, when I think of sorrow and depression, I think of depression as a numbing, and sorrow as a deep like it. Sorrow can feel infinite. When you when you touch your own sorrow, it feels like it can almost feel like an abyss, like that you're falling through. Whereas depression feels more like like this, like I'm not going to look, I'm not going to see, I'm, I'm going to close out my senses, I'm going to close things off, cut things off. When you allow yourself to feel depression, it's almost like there's not much to feel. Whereas if you allow yourself to feel sorrow, the feelings are huge and vast and actually completely connect you to the sorrow of every human being. Right. Eric, you were going to say something? Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for what you just said, actually. And um, I find that sitting zazen is kind of like the ideal kind of processing if, if I allow it. Because um, even, I mean, without distraction and not moving, I do. Yeah, uh, distract myself in, in the thoughts. Mm. Um, but there's been times when some really 
deep stuff that I don't even know where it comes from has been processed just by by being the body and um, just by being the body, you know. By um, being the body. Yeah. Um, and we are more than the body, but we are the body, and that's just by allowing that, just deep stuff can get processed. And I like what you said when you, you said that we don't necessarily know what it is. Yeah. In fact, almost I would say that if you think you know what it is, <laughs> there's something you're not seeing, <laughs> or you're not looking at, or your, um, our ideas get in the way, actually, of this process. Not that you know ideas are wrong, or we shouldn't have ideas, but we shouldn't dwell in those ideas. We shouldn't dwell in the, the concepts that are generated. Rather, we keep turning it around, turning it around, and just being open, right? Being open to what is, to what's happening. Now, uh, I'm gonna say a few more things from Blanche's, from Blanche's talk. She says, paying attention to what's happening right here and right now, which is the, this physical body, whatever sensations there might be, and breathing. Most of the stuff that's going on in our mind is not about what's happening right here and right now. Just check it out sometime. <laughs> Most of the stuff that's going on in our mind, again, this is the mental activity, is either chasing after the past or chasing after the future, worrying about the future, regretting, rehashing, chewing over the past incessantly, and figuring out who to blame for our difficulties. <laughs> it takes us a long time to realize that there is no one to blame and to just be willing to be here. There is no blame. It's just what is happening. And then when she talks about this grieving, she's talking about one of the first people at this, uh, this spirituality discussion group. She says, one person said, things are going pretty well for me now, but I just noticed today that even though everything is fine, I have this kind of worried uneasiness, not about anything in particular, and it seems strange when everything is going fine. And she says, I thought this teaching that there is suffering in the midst of joy is right there in what he's saying, this kind of worried uneasiness that although everything is fine now, something might happen and it won't be fine. So even in the midst of everything is fine, he can't be fully there and enjoy it. He can't fully participate in everything is fine. There's this newish, I think newish, uh, television series on Netflix called Dead to Me. Has anyone heard of it? Seen it? Yeah. A couple of people? Yeah. Yeah? Watch the first couple episodes. You watch it? Yeah, so it's pretty, uh, it's about grief. In particular, it's about the different ways that people process grief. <laughs> it's uh, I've enjoyed. I've, I've very much enjoyed it. It's very humorous, very well written. Um, but just these different ways that uh, how do we know how to process? Sometimes we think, and again, we if it's something we can't analyze, then we kind of sometimes feel like we don't, we can't trust it, right? Or we don't give over to it because we rely so much on our thinking, our thinking mind, the brain mind. And then Blanche says this on this topic. What is this willingness 
to live in perplexity, a willingness to live in the realm of not knowing. This is quite difficult. We can expound the Dharma with this body. We can live the truth. We just can't grab it. It's not graspable. And that's okay. We feel it in our body when we are out of line with it. This is getting back to what Tracy was saying. That's why Coben, Coben Chino, says it's such a big responsibility. This is such a big responsibility, our life. That naturally, such a person sits down for a while. We want to attune ourselves carefully to our body and mind so that we can notice when we are out of line with our deepest intention, so that we can feel it when we are out of line with this deepest intention. We want to cultivate that intimate knowing without words or ideas, that intimacy with ourself, so that we can tell if we are living our life the way we really want to. What is it? Just tuning in to ourself with our fundamental nature, our fundamental human nature, which sometimes in Buddhism is also called our Buddha nature. Suzuki Roshi says, our zazen is a human being practicing true human nature. I thought that was excellent. Now, this Buddha nature we talk about is not something mysterious or arcane. Buddha just means awake or one who is awake. So we find out how to align ourselves, how to be awake and to align ourselves with our deepest true intention. So, getting back to this question. When you write down on a practice period commitment form, or when you sit and, with yourself and think, what, do I, what is my deepest intention? Where do we look for that? Where do we find it? Do we find it in our thinking apparatus? Do we start writing a flowchart and like, you know, a list? Maybe, maybe that's a way of getting things started, right? If we tend to be thinking types. Although we have to go below that, that, su that surface, right? What is our deepest intention? Where do we find it? There's a practice, the practice of, um, uh, I was talking to somebody earlier this week, it's practice, the practice of Tonglen, which is sending and receiving on the breath. And it's a practice, a compassion practice. Um, you know, are you familiar with uh, Richie Davidson? Yes. Some of the studies that he was one of the people who was commissioned by the Dalai Lama to do a bunch of research, he's a neuroscientist, in uh, you know, the effects of meditation on the brain, like what's happening in the brain. And compassion, or the feeling of compassion, there's a lot of, there's been more and more studies on, you know, what is, how does compassion show up in the brain? And what are the distinctions or differences, if any, between something like compassion and empathy, right? And turns out different systems are in, engaged with those. And when you, he, uh, Davidson, studies the, mi the, the minds, the brains of Buddhist meditators. And um, let's see, this is from an article from The Atlantic. He wrote, uh, the, the article is called The Brains of Buddhists. <laughs> <laughs> Davidson concluded that compassion activated positive emotion circuitry in the brain. 
and that Buddhist monks were extraordinarily mentally healthy as a result of a cultivated spirit of generosity. <coughs> so again, this is really important. Cultivated. This is practice. <laughs> this is what practice is. It's cultivation. Quote, the systems in the brain that support our well-being are intimately connected to different organ systems in our body. Compassion is a kind of state that involves the body in a major way. And then this author of this article who mentions the Atlantic uh, article, she says, in fact, you probably already have a sense of this, meaning talking about this shin, even if you had no word for it before. Take a moment to reflect on the interconnected nature, the interconnectedness of all things, and you'll find it right there. It's not that far away. We can get pretty, uh, pretty caught up. <clears throat> you referenced the, um, analyzing the mind congruence, and that seems to be what the conscience is about. Conscience is quiet as long as we're congruent, and it speaks up when it finds incongruence. Ah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It starts to see things that are out of alignment, and then can course correct. And it, it can even see incongruence in itself, and that's what I think a lot of this kind of thing is. When you change your conscience, you know, um, when you've established that your conscience itself needs adjustment, that's a really big change. This is the practice of precepts in our, in our practice, in our school. When we practice precepts, um, this is one, one huge aspect. We take the precepts up. We do this every uh, month on the, close, on the Wednesday closest to the full moon. We just had one last week. And we take up the precepts. And they're kind of, they're, these are intentions. They're aspirations. I vow to live for the benefit of all beings, for example. And we take this up. And then we get to see... You know, how are my, my actions of body, speech, and mind, how do those actions uh, align with this intention or not, right? And we start to see those, you know, areas where things rub up and, and don't feel so good, right? And again, that's the next moment is in, of crucial importance. What, what, uh, what words do we use to, uh, to talk to ourselves in that next moment when we realize this incongruence, Right? That's where the rubber hits the road of practice. So again, it's not about piecing out. Right? It's about deeply settling your intention with your life energy. And noticing when that isn't settled. And when it's not settled, what do you do about it? You watch it. You allow it. You let it inform you. You don't then come up with your five-step plan for how you're going to... We do that. (laughs) We do that, right? I need to do X. I need to do Y. Now, if that's where our actions are coming from, from this kind of... If we have that feeling within us of kind of whipping ourselves, then, you know, that may not be as lucrative, there's a story about the, you know the story about the four horses? Susie Gershaw uh, tells this story often. There's this, uh, it's in the sutras. The story of the four horses is that there's three, there's four kinds of horses. There's the horse that runs, so think about a horse race. There's the horse that runs at the shadow of the whip. Just seeing the shadow of the whip. 
the horse will run. Then the other horse will, will, uh, will start to run just as it feels the, the whip start to touch its hair. Then it runs. <laughs> and the third horse starts to run when it starts to feel the pain of the whip hitting the skin. Yeah? Then there's the fourth horse. And the fourth horse doesn't start running until it feels the whip in the marrow. Now, Blanche Tall says she, she always used to compare herself to the fourth horse. I do too. Like, I really feel like I have to be like, you know, throttled before I'll change. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but she talks, she says, what is this whip? This whip is just that evanescence of life. It's that teaching of impermanence. It's not really a teaching, she says. It's what is. So uh, she says, maybe it's not so bad to be the fourth horse because when it gets to the marrow, you've got it through and through. <laughs> <laughs> the stubbornness of the, of the fourth horse. And then... Um, She says, so talking about precepts, practice takes place to shape your whole ability to reflect the light coming through you. Again, light is uh, another image um, for awakening. And to regenerate your system, so the light increases its power. Each precept is a remark about hard climbing, maybe climbing down to the very ground of your being. You don't use the precepts, this is very important, you don't use the precepts for accomplishing your own personality or fulfilling your dream of your highest image. You don't use the precepts in that way. The precepts are the reflective light world of one precept, which is Buddha's mind itself, which is the presence of Buddha. Zazen is the first formulation of the accomplishment of Buddha existing. The more you sense the rareness and value of your own life, and I would say the more you are open to that open wound, the more you're open to accepting whatever it is that's coming up, the more you uh, can settle amidst the turmoil and not think there's something wrong because you're feeling sorrow, because you're feeling turmoil. But to allow those things to just be there, if they're there. The more you realize that how you use it, your own life meaning, how you manifest it, it is all your responsibility. We face such a big task, so naturally, such a person sits down for a while. It is not an intended action. It's a natural action. So I want to thank you all for being here and being here for this, uh, when we had our memorial service. And uh, deeply, I want to thank Blanche. And I said in the beginning of the memorial service that or when I was speaking in the memorial service today, I said, I think I used the word unassuming. And I guess what I wanted to say about that is that there's no pretense with, with Blanche. She was never trying to look good. Or when she was, she would admit it. <laughs> she would say, oh, I'm just trying to look good. 
she was so open and so vulnerable, and her teaching, um, you know, it came through in just her deportment, how she carried herself. You know, Sherry's story of her crawling around on, on all fours. That was your story, yeah? That was your story. We were standing next to each other. Yeah. The, yeah, this, this feeling of just seeing Blanche put her body into her practice wholeheartedly. Such an inspiration I wish I could share with all of you how deeply she's uh, yeah, resonated in my own practice. So if you haven't had a chance to uh, read some of her works, there is a book by Earthland Manuel, one of her students, um, called Boundless Seeds for a Boundless Life, yes. And I highly recommend it. So thank you all for being here. <laughs>